Recording started. Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Wednesday, October 13th, and our special guest is Roger Shank. Roger, I put the glamour shot of you up on this screen, and then I put a fuller <laughs> one. <laughs> I hope that's okay. <laughs> and how glamorous it is, it's just old. Oh, they both look good. <laughs> so, welcome. Really glad to have you on the show. The Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, now Blackboard Collaborate. And the project I work on is Learn Central, a social network for educators with Illuminate baked in. It is free. We hope you'll come and use it and take advantage of the tools there. We're also sponsored this month, October, by the Redo Project from Bing and Microsoft. So that's bing.com forward slash redo. And thanks to them, they keep my book budget balanced. We've announced our Global Education Conference many times, but just a reminder, November 15th to 19th, 2010, all online, all free. Uh, we're still accepting applications for presentations. I am the bottleneck on the presentations right now. If you haven't heard back from us, it's because the regional chair people have sent them to me, and I'm at a conference and haven't been able to respond. But it's highly inclusive, and if your subject is anywhere close to related to globally connecting students and teachers, don't worry. We're going to find a way for you to present. Coming up uh, tomorrow on the Future of Education, Kathleen Cushman is bringing some students to talk about homework. This promises to be a really fun evening. We've talked to Kathleen before. I really like her perspective. Uh, and just tonight was struggling with my own daughter's homework circumstance. So. Uh, I'm appreciative of Kathleen's message. Next week, Nancy White on networks and communities, Jennifer Fox on your child's strengths. You can see lots of fun guests coming up uh, through the end of the year. If this is, oh, I was about to move forward to the Illuminate section. But first, uh, if you've missed a session, do know that they are all recorded and up at futureofeducation.com. Last night with Sylvia Martinez was terrific. Uh, really great to hear from her. Uh, um, Joe DiMartino and Denise Walk on the personalized high school last week. That was great as well. All of these have been so terrific. So do know those uh, recordings are up. And there's also a podcast stream if that's what you like to do. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. The first thing I'm going to recommend that you do is go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. View layouts and switch to the wide layout. That will help you be, to be able to see the screen a little bit better and to see the chat. Uh, at the bottom of the participant window are ways that you can uh, indicate how you're feeling. There's a smiley face, a clapping hand, a confused look, or a thumbs down. We mostly see the smiley face and the clapping hand. To the left is a larger hand with a green up arrow. That's how you would raise your hand if you want to ask a question using the microphone. Uh, and before you do that, do be sure to go up and, and run the Tools Audio Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your microphone is working correctly. Now you can also ask questions in the chat, and we'll try and address them all. And we, we do try and move quickly to Q&A uh, during the second half of the show so you have a chance to ask questions. We're now going to give you a chance to indicate where you're participating from. To the left of the map, you'll see a wand with a red star. Click on that, and then click on the map. And those of you who attended before, you know you can also shout out in the chat. Let us know where you're listening from, the time, and the temperature. Fun to see a couple of folks from Australia, Alaska, Canada, United States, 
No, I don't know if you meant to turn your video off again, but it went no, off. I no, I didn't. It said, oh, can, it I, can I, my back, my back? Not yet. We'll see what happens. It just came up and said error. error. I almost got you back there for a second. Looks like you're coming back. Yeah, you're back. Tammy, always fun to have you here representing the rural population. So, Roger, I really am delighted that you've come on the show. Uh, there's an interesting thing that's happened a couple of times when we've had guests on that haven't been a part of the normal discourse in the educational technology community. And I think you'd fall into that category. I think you're very well known outside of the the community of people in Classroom 2.0 and Future of Education, but um, maybe new to a lot of us. So I'm hoping that we'll get a chance to learn from you. I'd like to call tonight um, Roger Shank 101. So give you a chance to kind of uh, tell us about the variety of things that you think about and, and how they relate specifically to how we think about teaching and learning. Um, I, I also wanted to make a little bit of a connection. Um, and and there's, a, there's an aspect of this that makes me a little nervous. So uh, we were both at Stanford, uh, I think, at the same time, although I was uh, probably in junior high school, uh, <laughs> maybe moving into high school when you were there. And my dad was dean of admissions. And he then became the chairman of the college board. And you tell a story about someone at the college board in the quadratic equation. And I had this little worry. I thought, oh my gosh. I wonder if that was my dad. No, it's not. <laughs> I'm talking about the card chairman. His name is Capitan. Uh, oh, good. Well, I'm, now I'm relieved. <laughs> so um, uh, you have this fascinating background. And I made a list of the projects that I could see that you've been working on. And I'm just going to read them quickly. Socratic Arts, Alternative Learning Place, Story-Centered Curriculum MBA Program, Alternative High School, The Reminding Machine, Institute for Learning Sciences, Engines for Education, Virtual International Science and Technology Academy, Grandparent Games. And I've got to imagine that's maybe half the list. How do you do Part this all? By having some very smart people working for me. Short answer. So what ties this all together? Uh, I, kind of, I kind of got the sense there was this progression from computer to learning to education, but is that too simplistic? Is there sort of a richer picture you can give us of what's brought you through these um, activities? Well, I mean, my personal history is that I was a lousy student. We'll start with that. Um, and was very frustrated by school. Um, managed to somehow get a PhD despite that, largely for reasons. I mean, I almost never got an A in a class in my entire life. Um, found myself at Stanford, which was a fairly unlikely place to be for somebody who had barely graduated college, uh, as a professor, and started getting interested in how the mind worked. Um, I wasn't really interested in learning, per se, but when you start thinking about the mind and memory and language, you're going to, at some point, run into the idea that learning is a pretty important part of that. I had, at that time, been building computer programs to understand stories, and I began to realize that they could understand and listen to the same story again and again and never get bored. So I thought they weren't really doing a very good model of the mind, because the mind would look around and say, I saw that story already. I'm bored with it. But our programs never got bored. So I started to think about what it meant to be bored. 
and what it meant to remember and what it meant to match old experience to new experience and came away with a new conception of it, which was that all you ever did when you listened was match what you were hearing to what you already knew. And I realized that that was something that computers would have to do if they were going to get smart and if they were going to, if they were going to learn. And around the time that I was doing that in AI circles, my children went to school. And I started to yet again think about why I was miserable in school because both of my children were miserable in school. And I went through a long period of trying to figure out what was going on there. And initially, sort of looking at it as well, they weren't paying attention to the individual kid. My kids were kind of bright. They should do something special. But gradually moving into the realization that it had nothing to do with my children at all, or even intelligent or unintelligent children, that the school system was designed around a set of premises which were simply wrong and bore no relationship to what I knew about intelligence. So if you think about me trying to get computers to be smart and thinking about what you'd have to do to make a computer smart, and at the same time realizing, well, that would be what you'd have to do to make a kid smart, and by the way, the schools aren't even approaching that problem, not even thinking about that problem. And so I naively, I'm talking now, I've reached the mid-80s in my history, naively I thought, I will just tell these people what they're doing wrong and they will hear me because I'm a famous important professor. And what I realized was that was about the stupidest thought I'd ever had. That there were a lot of political reasons why I was never going to convince anybody of anything, uh, starting with the fact that the book publishers weren't about to change their books, which were making a lot of money for you, thank you very much. And then watched gradually as I tried to create new kinds of educational things on computers, because I was a computer guy, so I could do that, and realized that I was running up uphill against everybody who wanted to do the opposite, which is to use the computer to reinforce the existing system. And I got more and more frustrated and more and more understanding why the system works the way it does, to the point now where I think that I am, you know, I have a little phrase on my website, which I say over and over again, there's only two things wrong with education, what we teach and how we teach it. Both are wrong. And not a single piece of them is right. So when you hear people talk about school and education, I'm the furthest radical you'll ever find because I just don't believe it. I don't believe that schools are about education or even intended to do education. And I think if we were interested in education for our children, we would do something very different. Now, I know why they turned out that way, but that doesn't mean in a modern era they have to be that way. That's for short history. So I watched several videos of you speaking, and I think you come off as being both authentic and passionate. Do you think that that sometimes, um, that, that that passion and authenticity uh, themselves are a barrier to people hearing you because so much of what we do in education is systematized and sort of methodical? Well, I think I thought a lot about why it's hard for people to hear me. Uh, and also, one of the things that you wouldn't know, I don't think, uh, unless you look very carefully, is that I'm much more famous in Spanish-speaking countries in education circles than I am in English-speaking countries. And I don't, I've often wondered about why that is. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the receptivity of the population. And what I'm about to talk about is true of the United States, but it's true of a lot of places all over the world. I can say the following. Remember, I think everything in school is wrong. So I can say, pick my favorite subject. Algebra shouldn't be taught. That makes no sense to teach it. And what you'll get is a lot of people say, yes, I see your point about algebra, but not about X, where X is whatever they studied in school. So you understand, I don't think algebra is any more ridiculous to teach than history or English literature or chemistry or physics. They're all ridiculous, and I can give you reasons for each. And when I say that, 
people say, yes, but I worked very hard at X. It doesn't matter what X is. Because if you were out of school for 16 years, you kind of think that you must have been doing something worthwhile. And when I say you're not doing something worthwhile, everyone has a knee-jerk reaction to say, no, no, that's just too crazy. I, that's too far. I, I agree about algebra. I agree about history, whatever they happen to agree about. But they always disagree about something else. So there's always some sacred subject. And I think before people are ready for change, they have to come to grips with the fact that the system was designed around false principles, and it was designed in another era, and it was designed for a situation that no, bears no relationship with the situation we as a world are currently into, and it has to be rethought. And the simplest question I always ask is, if you think the school system was designed correctly, who do you think designed it? And when was it designed? And when would it be ready for a redesign? And then, and then people never really ask that question. So Roger, I'm reading a really interesting book called The Invisible Gorilla. And I don't know if you've seen this, but it's based on the YouTube video or the video that these um, two psychiatrists, psychologists did where they have basketball teams uh, passing each other the ball. And in the middle of the video, a person in a gorilla suit walks through, but you're busy counting the number of passes. And most people miss the fact that the gorilla has walked through the video. And it's a, it's a really interesting book. And it makes the point that in six areas, we have illusions about how our brains work that aren't actually correlated to reality, one, one of which is attention, and the other is memory, and one is knowledge, and one is confidence. And they sort of debunk each of these areas. Is there a degree to which we just have a, a wrong cultural perception of what learning is, and that that's sort of at the heart of the reason people don't want to change is because we tell ourselves a story about teaching and learning that, that just will always or that sort of perpetuates itself? Yes, there are a number of those misconceptions. Uh, one of the misconceptions, which is just simply obvious to most people who think about it, is you can't learn anything by being told. Now, that idea has been around since Plato. Uh, John Dewey is an Amer led the charge on this in America, and he said, you can only learn by doing. He said, but I've been saying this for a long time, and no one listens. No, he said this in 1916. He said, and no one listens. He says, I think the reason is because you can't learn by hearing. <laughs> so, of course, no one's listening, which is right. You can't actually learn from other people. And anybody who's been a parent recognizes this, that children have to make their own mistakes, that you can tell them don't do X, and they're going to try and do X anyway, uh, that their experiences are their teachers. And the best you can do is be a guide. And so when we have the idea that a teacher or a trainer will stand up in a room and say things, and people will hear it, that's just wrong. And what I do in lectures quite often is I ask people, how many exits are there in a 757? And uh, what do the green lights mean? And how do you open the fire door? And, and, and people all look at me blankly. And I say, you've only heard this video a 100 times, a 1,000 times, depending on how many times you fly. And you have no idea. Where are the life rafts located on a 757? I bet you not a person in the audience knows the answer. Despite having heard that video, I don't know how many times. Because people don't learn by listening. And if you wanted to teach people how to get ready for a flight emergency, you'd put them through a simulation of the flight emergency. Now, we know why the airplanes don't do that, but what is, why does that explain why the schools don't do that? So we ought to be asking ourselves, how can we give kids experiences, not how can we tell people stuff? So that's the first and most important fallacious assumption. The second most important fallacious assumption is that there's stuff worth telling anyhow. And as it happens, I'm in Pennsylvania on the Delaware River today, and I had yet another example of the kind of thing that I think is true, which is that people say, oh, it's very important to learn history. You can't be an American if you don't learn American history. And every American in the audience knows the iconic picture of George Washington crossing the Delaware, standing in the ship, 
with people behind him braving the wilds of the waters. But as it happens, I'm right now at a place called Washington Crossing, Pennsylvania. It's where Washington crossed the Delaware. It's so narrow at that point you could throw a baseball across from one side to the other. The picture does not depict what actually happened. And so we have this idea that if you don't know who George Washington is, you have, what kind of American are you? When there's no need to know anything about George Washington, it's nonsense. And so each subject that you look at and think about as being, you must know this, what, and my favorite, of course, is the quadratic equation. You must know the quadratic equation. That's because it's on every single SAT test. But it's never used by anybody in actual life. So why would we teach it? Now, I actually know why it's taught. Most people don't. And the reason it's taught is it really give, it strikes at the heart of what the issue is. That in 1892, when the curriculum was actually designed by one person, which it was, by Charles Eliot, who was the president of Harvard, who was copying the Harvard curriculum at the time, word for word. So he guess what courses they taught at, Harvard, taught at Harvard in those days? Physics, chemistry, biology, history, English, algebra, geometry. Guess what? Exactly what equals the high school curriculum. So first off, Harvard has new subjects since 1892. Not true of high school. Why do we teach algebra? Because on Charles Eliot's subcommittee, there was a guy named Professor Fine, who was the chairman of the Princeton Math Department, who was selling an algebra textbook. And so he made a point of making sure it was required so that everyone would buy his book. Is that a good reason to be learning this garbage? It's garbage. And people come up with things that think, well, it teaches you to think. Nonsense. It's the same nonsense that you had to learn Latin to teach you to think. It's just things people make up to justify things they don't understand why they're doing them. So when we have the entire country hysterical about math scores going up and math scores going down, when no adult can know the quadratic formula unless they are a teacher of it or have just recently tutored their children in it, you have to ask yourself the question, what could possibly be the point of this? And I get passionate about it because I'm angry. How many generations of student interest can we lose by teaching them stuff they'll never need to know that they, in fact, are smart enough to know they don't need to know? Ask them. They know it. They know they don't need to know it. And yet we ram it down their throats. So we have a really sick system. So I, I, I want to ask you some questions about stories. But I've been traveling, and I haven't actually been able to read your book, Tell Me a Story. So can you kind of give a, a picture of what your thoughts are about stories so that I don't embarrass myself when I ask my next set of questions? What does, what does the book, Tell Me a Story, describe? Well, I just told you a story that I've told about a million times. Okay, it's my little rant about quadratic formula. I have, it turns out, many stories. As an experiment, I once wrote a bunch of them down. Just when I got to 100, I got tired. But there are stories I tell that are just so stories about my life that I would tell the students or my children or anybody to make a point. We all are collections of lots of stories we tell. They're not stories that start out, you know, once upon a time there was a little girl. They're stories about, hey, when I was in this situation, you mentioned Stanford, I have a lot of Stanford stories. Things I learned about academic life through my first academic job at Stanford. And we tell these a lot. And over time, they become the only thing we remember. We tend to forget life and remember our own stories. One of the reasons we have an experience that we like to tell it to people is what we're doing is creating and rehearsing the story that will become the memory. And so part of my argument is that human memory is organized around stories, and human dialogue is organized around story exchange. And that when you're in a conversation, what you're really doing is waiting for your opportunity to tell a story that you're reminded of by the something that somebody else just said. And that's how conversation works, and that's how learning works. Because when I match my stories onto your stories, I get wiser as a result of some mismatch, and it gets me to think about that. It's also why you can't understand a lecture. Because if I'm talking, giving a lecture to 1,000 people, 
each of those people is being reminded of things that they think of, the stories in their own mind that my stories are reminding them of. And then they're making a match, and in a conversation they would interrupt me and say, this is what, something like that happened to me, or this is how I see it. But they don't get to do that in a lecture. So they have two choices, both of which are bad. One of which is they can think more carefully about the relationship between what I said and what they think, but then they will not hear a single word that I'm saying while they're doing that. Alternatively, they could not think about those relationships, in which case they will not learn anything from what I'm talking about. And so you have a thousand people hearing a thousand different lectures based upon their own matches of you, your stories to their stories. And all understanding is, is matching your stories to the stories of the person who's talking or the situation. It doesn't have to be a person. And we have standard stories that we know and we tell. And what I'm interested in, and I think that the problem we have, what I'm working on when you saw my thing about the reminding machine, in fact, that's where I happen to be where I am today because I'm doing that project right this minute, is I'm working with big companies to get their stories. In other words, what do your experts know? What experiences have your experts had? And how can I get that expert knowledge in front of the decision maker at the moment he needs it, not before, not after, not a thousand stories to be heard before you need them, but stories to be used just in time. And my example of that is imagine a GPS and you're traveling and the GPS knows you. So it knows who, what you like to do. So it says, hey, at 7 o'clock I know you're hungry um, and you're, I know you like Chinese food and you know there's a great Chinese restaurant five minutes from here. Would you like me to direct you to it? That's the kind of story I have in mind, just-in-time storytelling. So I propose this for the military that they, when they're on Defense Department money, when they're sitting out there with a soldier in Afghanistan who's trying to talk to an Afghan warlord, it would be helpful to have a story from someone else's talk to an Afghan warlord just now when you need it to talk about what you might think. And I, when I talk to big businesses, big businesses have situations. My favorite example I always use is because I work as a consultant to the shipping industry, um, the Greek shipping industry, as it turns out. Um, so there's a story that they tell, which I like a lot, which is that a, a captain who was going through the Suez Canal and his boiler went on fire. Imagine a giant cargo ship and his boiler is on fire. And so the question is, what should he do? And any naive person who doesn't know about shipping says, put out the fire, which turns out to be exactly the wrong thing to do. And the reason it's the wrong thing to do is that if you are, in order to put out a fire you have to, on a boiler, you have to stop the ship. If you stop the ship in the Suez Canal, It'll either run into the ship in front of it because it's very narrow, or it'll run aground. At the point where either of those things happen, the Egyptian government has the right to claim the value of half of your cargo and half of your ship, which is a lot of money. So about the last thing you'd ever want to do is stop your ship in the Suez Canal. It doesn't matter what's happening on the ship. And any captain should know that, but they might not. So imagine a situation where the system is smart enough to know you're in the Suez Canal, know you're the captain of a ship, know the boil's on the fire, and say to you, Captain, the boil's on fire. I recommend not stopping the ship. So I'm just interested in just-in-time advice. A story can be one sentence. So do the technologies of the web, the social networking and blogging, are, can they be seen within the context of allowing us to share more stories? Is that part of what they're doing? Well, it could be what they're doing, but they're not. Um, what they're doing is doing it in, a, in an ineffective way. So yes, that's right. You can decide to share your stories with certain people by Facebook or by blogging. You're sharing your stories with you don't know who. But the problem with blogging is a, bit, a better example. The problem with blogging is this. We have come to understand, remember I'm a technologist before I start all this. So we've come to understand that your, your, bottle, your blog will be found through Google. And Google is a keyword search engine. You can play with it. So for example, I learned that people were coming to my site by typing in the question, what should I go to school for, for which I did not have an answer. So I wrote a blog called, what should I go to school for, which I pointed out was ambiguous and I'll answer both questions. 
And it is now, if you type into Google, you could try this out as we speak, what should I go to school for? The first thing you're going to find is my answer. Because I'm tricking Google's stupidity of not understanding the question in the first place to make it so that my answer is the answer to that question. But that's not how it should work. How Google should work if it were being designed by people who are interested in something other than 50s technology on steroids, which is basically what Google is, uh, is you'd have to organize every story by the goals and plans and um, situations and advice uh, which characterize the nature of the intent of the story. This is what I call an index. And we get reminded of one person's story of another unconsciously by constructing this index. We're very good at it. We can construct an unconscious index. And the story I always tell to explain that is what I call the stake in the haircut story. The stake in the haircut story is once upon a time, a long time ago, I was complaining to my colleague Bob Abelson with whom I wrote my, when I first books, um, and I said, you know, my, I keep asking my wife to cook steak rare, and she never cooks it rare enough. And he said to me, and I couldn't get my hair cut as short as I wanted it in England 30 years ago, which sounds brain damaged. And so Bobby Wilson was not brain damaged, so we went and thought about it for a while, so how that reminding could occur. And it turns out if you look at both those stories at the right level of abstraction, they're identical. What's the right level of abstraction? I was trying to get my, my steak cooked rare. It means I was asking somebody who agreed to do a service to do that service and who was capable of doing that service, but she refused because she thought the request was too extreme. That's the abstract characterization of that, which turns out to be identical to the haircut story. And so what you learn is that human beings are unconsciously, they don't know they're doing this, characterizing information in terms of high-level analysis like I just gave you, which are all, turns out, about goals, plans, and goal conflicts and situations and conditions under which they occur. And so what we're trying to do is teach the machine to know that. So blogging in the future will be very interesting because at some point we'll have a structured internet where you won't just be able to write a blog. You'll also have to provide the index. Say this is the goal, this is the plan, these are the conditions. And then people will find it without looking for it by saying here are my plans, here are my goals, and here are my conditions. And that's how just-in-time storytelling would occur. Then instead of just reading somebody and following their blog, their blog would find you at the moment of need, which is how humans behave. Humans don't just tell you all their stories. They, if they're sitting nearby, they tell the one that they think is most relevant to the situation at that moment. It reminds me a little of John C. Lee Brown. Are you familiar with his work? Well, John, oh, John and I have known each other for, for 50 years, so I guess so. Okay. <laughs> hey, well, so I was looking uh, on the web today uh, related to stories for you, and I came across this quote. Uh, we would like to imagine that we learn from the stories of others, but we really only do so when the stories we hear relate to beliefs that we feel rather unsure of, ones that we are flirting with at the moment, so to speak. So I'm wondering if we're at, a, at an interesting moment with regard to education, because it seems as though there's a more general sense that the stories that we've told about education no longer work. So is there an openness to new stories about education, and are you finding that people are um, are wanting to have to sort of redefine those stories? Well, this is what I've learned about education in the last 20 years. I would go and say radical things like this 20 years ago. And if I was talking to an audience of teachers, which isn't something I do that often, but I would do sometimes, the teachers are very uncomfortable with what I was saying. But 20 years later, the world has changed. And I thank George Bush and President Obama for this. They've created a system which is so hostile to teachers that teachers are now ready to listen but the problem, of course, is teachers aren't in control. They don't have a control over the system. So, yeah, there are many people now ready to listen, but none of those people are in charge. Who's in charge of the education system, unfortunately, is book publishers and test makers and test graders, 
I live in Florida where they spend, a figure I noticed the other day, $300 million a year on grading tests alone, on the, what they call the FCAT in Florida. So that industry is really big and really powerful and has lots of lobbies. And it's not going to get easily beaten. And one cannot convince the government because the government is in with them. And one cannot convince the teachers because the teachers are powerless. One has to simply build the alternative. And that's why you listed all those things I'm doing, the Virtual uh, Science and Technology Academy, the Alternative Learning Place, Grandparent Games. These are all the building of the alternative. The idea of saying, look, I realize that the people who make money on education are not interested in alternatives. They're just interested in continuing to make money. So when you see the Washington Post give editorials on why testing is important, you ought to check to see that they own Kaplan testing. And understand that there's a giant interconnection between the people who are publicizing and arguing why our test scores are up and test scores are down and we're not as good as Korea and all this other nonsense, they're making money on it. And it's, not, it's a theme in this country, which is that people who make a lot of money control the dialogue. So I don't think we're going to convince people about how to change education. I think we just have to band together and change education. And that means finding people who care about it. Um, and I have, a, as it happens, a billionaire friend who I often talk to, hopefully thinking he might want to finance education. And he's turned to me many times and said, nobody rich actually cares about education, which I think is true. Uh, so you have Bill Gates running around saying he wants to change education. He doesn't mean it. He wants to look good. He doesn't want to do anything radical. He wants to make schools look nicer or whatever. You don't have people out there really wanting to change education. I haven't found them. Uh, that's less true, as I said, in Spanish-speaking countries for some reason, where they actually do listen to me. I'm even better listened to in Pakistan than I am in the United States. A, there are people who want to change the system, but the system is really entrenched. So I'm also reminded of John Taylor Gatto. And I had um, Mr. Gatto on two or three months ago. And it was interesting to hear him talk, because 20 years ago, he was also in the extreme. And I feel as though he's now much more mainstream than he was before. Now, he kind of quit education. And, and I get the sense that you, you're sort of saying the same thing, which is to, to make the change, you do it outside, and you create some, an alternate system. Are you familiar with his work? Well, I read his early books, yeah. I don't know what he's doing lately. I think he's old enough that I, I don't think he's doing much lately. Hey, so another quote that caught my eye was uh, that you had sent an email out to your students, tell me something important I taught you and that uh, when they responded back, not one of those things came from uh, actual classes. So if we shift gears here a little bit toward kind of what are the things that we should be doing in learning, is, does that help kind of uh, springboard us into a discussion of, of what learning is and what it could be? Well, sure. Um, I mean, let, let's understand what learning actually is apart from school, because after all, we learn long before we get into school. So here's an example. One of the first things I'd like to talk about is experimentation. Learning is about experimenting. And every child knows that, and they know that at the age of one day. They experiment from, the, from birth with, if I cry, does somebody come get me? If I stick this in my mouth, does it taste good? And they continue on with experiments all through their lives. I mean, we, we look at this badly when they're teenagers. They're experimenting with sex. Well, that's what they should be doing. So the sense of, I'm experimenting with X. And any child at any age is experimenting when they're three years old and they're throwing something against the wall, they're experimenting to see how that works. Uh, when they throw a temper tantrum, they're seeing if that will control their parents. Um, that notion of experimentation, which is critical in learning, because that's the only way you really can learn, gets stamped out in school. 
in school experimentation is not allowed and it gets replaced by we're going to teach you to run an experiment which means you'll learn what somebody else did in a science experiment and copy it and do it exactly the same way. So we take experimentation which is natural to children and ruin it. But as it turns out you have to experiment all through life. If you want to start a business you're experimenting. If you want to start a career you're experimenting. If you get married you're experimenting. And anything you do is an experiment to see how it works out. And this notion of how to experiment well, which is what schools should teach, how to test the data, how to know if you've received real good data back, how to understand what qualifies as evidence in your experiment, which ought to be the nature of learning, isn't what goes on in school. Or take another one, diagnosis. Diagnosis is critical to being a grown-up in the world. You know, when you're five years old and your wheel falls off your truck, you've got to figure out how to get it back on. You can try to figure it on or you can cry and hope mommy fixes it. But at some point, you're on your own with diagnosis. The plumbing breaks, you can call a plumber, but you might want to figure out if you can figure out how to fix it yourself. Or your car breaks, you might like to see if you can fix it yourself. Or you're get feeling your back hurts and you like to know if you can fix it yourself. There are people who are professionals in diagnosis. Doctors, you know, car mechanics, plumbers are all professionals in diagnosis. But in life, we have to diagnose all kinds of things you can't call a professional. Like, I'm unhappy. Why am I, why am I unhappy? I don't like my job. Why is that? So you've got to diagnose problems. We should be having, from the age of uh, from a little child all through life, help in learning to good, do diagnosis well. But we don't. Because school isn't about the diagnosing of possibly unsolved problems. School is about telling you these are the solutions to problems, which is actually not what diagnosis is really based on. Diagnosis is based on figuring it out. Now, there are known solutions. It's good to learn them. No question about it. But if, I'm not, if I teach you to memorize a bunch of solutions before you ever have the problem, it'll go in one ear and out the other. So this notion of just-in-time education is critical. But one of the problems you have in education is everyone should be on the same page on the same day is the hallmark of the system when we should be allowing kids to go where they want to go and do what they want to do. Now, I didn't used to be a big fan of homeschooling because I used to think that homeschooling had a, I still think homeschooling has a serious flaw. And that flaw is that they're still trying to teach the kids the same curriculum. It's just I'll teach algebra to them, but I'll teach it to them at home. You have to be... I am a fan of homeschooling if you realize that the curriculum is wrong and you've got to teach whatever the kids are interested in. Whatever the kids are interested in is the, interesting, is the point. And I always like to illustrate this with my, the story about my son. Now, I have two children, both of whom are grown up at this point. Um, my son, when he went to college, um, told me he wanted to major in history and I said he would be paying for his own education if he did that. It was a waste of time. He said, what should I major in? I said, subways. Now, that may sound as an odd answer, but, of course, I knew my son. And from any, the age of eight or six or whatever it was when he first went on the New York subway to the point of 17 or 18 when he had this conversation, he had attempted to ride every subway system in the world. If I took him to Tokyo, which I did, he never got above ground. He rode the subways. He wrote, drew, drew subway maps when he was six. He even redesigned subway systems in his head. This kid was obsessed with subways. I said, major in subways. He said, how do I do that? I said, well, the school isn't going to help you major in subways. But that's probably somebody there knows about subways, find out who he is and study with him. To make a long story short, my son has now a PhD in transportation and works on transportation design problems for the country. Um, this is me paying attention to who he was. I did not have the goal for him to do subways. Right? It was a very funny goal, I thought, actually. But it was his goal, so I went with it. And I think the idea that a child should get to direct their own education under the tutelage of somebody smart who cares about them, is what education has to be and always was in the history of mankind. This classroom idea is a recent invention. It's a terrible idea. Classrooms themselves are the problem. You have to not have them. 
I, I sometimes think when people talk lately, Obama's been talking about, you know, we need better teachers. Really? If you put me, and I was a very good teacher in graduate school anyway, if you put me in front of 30 high school kids, none of whom wanted to be there and had me teach them something, I would be out the door in 10 minutes. That's an impossible situation. Those kids don't want to learn the junk you're teaching them because they know it's junk. So of course they're acting up. The idea of a classroom makes no sense. It's only there for economic reasons. It's not there for educational reasons. So you've touched on uh, the 12 cognitive processes a little there. Do you want to expand on that at all? Yeah, I can talk about the others, but you can, go to, you can find them on our website. Um, I, I mentioned diagnosis and, and, um, and experimentation. Another one is uh, prediction. You, you are constantly trying to make predictions. When you open a business, you're making a prediction. When you meet some person, have a relationship with them, you're making predictions. You, you bet the horses, you're making a prediction. I mean, whatever you're doing, you're making predictions. Understanding whether your predictions are right or wrong and how to make better ones turns out to be, again, important. Walking is a prediction. If I put this step in front of, foot in front of that foot, um, I will suddenly get there. I won't fall down. Little kids, when they're learning to walk, are trying to predict the location of their foot and what, may, what works and what doesn't. Uh, and they learn to run by predicting better. Uh, so prediction is important. Evaluation is important. Is this good? Is this bad? So how does this taste? How do I like this person? Is this something valuable to me? Is it worth money? I mean, lots of ways to evaluate things. But evaluating things is very important. Um, description is very important. Learning how to talk. Learning how to write. Uh, learning how to say what you, what you think about something is very important. Anyway, they're on my website, rogershank.com. Uh, I list the 12 that I think are important. Um, and they are, I'm not arguing they are, should be a curriculum because I don't want somebody memorizing the 18 principles of diagnosis. What I'm arguing is that when kids learn things, that's what they need to be practicing to do. And now it doesn't matter in what context. So if you're interested in medicine, Great. If you're interested in plumbing, great. If you're interested in, in, in doll construction, great. If you're interested in city planning, great. It all involves diagnosis. So I want to make sure that people are being taught to do diagnosis properly within a domain of interest the child sets out. That the child gets to determine what interests him or her. And then from within that frame of interest, we go with it. So I'm building right now some uh, first grade because I have, two, I have a bunch of grandchildren. I'm not going to allow them to go to school. It's going to make me crazy. So I, the oldest one is five. He's going to go to, he's just started kindergarten. I, I, when he comes to first grade, I want him to go to my first grade. I'm building one for him. He likes to build stuff and do stuff. He likes to play with blocks. He likes to play games. So I'm going to have, it's a, I'm calling it the engineering curriculum, first grade engineering curriculum. We'll get to build bridges, play with robots, design cars. There should be hundreds of these. The idea that there should be a curriculum is just crazy. Why should there be one? Why can't there be one that interests him? And if he gets uninterested in that and he wants to do music, let him do music. And if he gets uninterested in that and he wants to do design, let him do design. I, I, they all involve diagnosis. They all involve these cognitive capacities. You can't avoid them. They, they are there in anything you do. It's interesting. I don't think I picked up on this when I first read about the cognitive processes, but certainly now I feel very much like that's what I do as a parent. I'm sort of helping to model and to provide context for and to support uh, becoming skilled in those areas. And I never thought about it in the context of, well, that, that doesn't happen at school. In many ways, school is sort of the foil. Uh, you know, I end up having to teach a lot of those principles because of difficulties that they're having in the school environment, which becomes sort of the experimenting ground for helping them see past those circumstances. Um, so it sounds very much like your uh, beliefs here also have been also been shaped by your being a parent and a grandparent. Um, anything else you'd want to say about that? 
Yeah, in fact, the very thing I was describing comes from a, a, an incident with my daughter when she was, uh, I think, six and when I was a professor at Yale. Uh, and my parents lived in Brooklyn, so we had gone to visit them. And we were driving under the Verrazano Narrows Bridge. And she said, what makes that bridge stay up? And I said, well, I got home to New Haven. I said, let's build a bridge. Let's build a suspension bridge. Now, I never built a suspension bridge in my life. I didn't really know how they work, but I had some ideas. And we sat there and built one in the backyard over a mud pile. And she remembers that experience extremely well. And I learned from that experience is that she liked to build things. So she, being a girl, she wanted to play with dolls, so we went and built the dollhouse together. And it wasn't that she was planning on becoming an engineer, but it was a time for us to relate and to talk about the things one-on-one. -on -one. And I think that my view of, of education is that parents who are interested in their children, who are good at edu educating their children naturally, are the model you want to copy. But one-on-one -on -one education, following this child's interest. I didn't tell her she should be interested in elephants. She told me she was interested in elephants. So we went to see a lot of elephants. And you know, I don't care what she was interested in. As long as she was interested in something, then we could keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. So the issue is, of course, if you're going to be interested in ele elephants, you might want to diagnose what's wrong with that elephant if you went to a zoo and it looked funny. Um, and so the issue for me was never to do anything about telling my children what their interests should be, but by listening carefully enough to know what they were and going with it. Do I think that's the right model for education? Yes, of course. That, is, that should be the model. School is an idea that's based on we've got to shove these kids through the process to make them into good functioning citizens who do what they're told, which is pretty much what the school system is all about. Make good factory workers. That was the design when it was designed. I'm not interested in making my child a good factory worker. I, I, in fact, right now I have this the problem is I have a grandson, Max, who's been sent to preschool. He's three years old. And he was sent home with notes from the teacher that maybe he has a hearing problem because when he's told what to do, he doesn't do it. So his mother was very concerned. I said, yell lollipop. So he turned around in a big hurry. I said, well, he can hear. Uh, she said, but he doesn't come when I say, Max, come here and do this. I said, because he's doing something else. He happens to like trains, like his father. And he's playing with trains all the time. And he's not interested in what she's saying. So how do you interest him? Well, by bringing more trains, by saying, let's go for a ride in the metro. He was in Washington. Let's go for a ride in the metro, which he loves. Let's go for a ride on a different train. Or that's why I wrote the Grandparent Games program, so I can go online with him and say, let's see some trains in, in, in California. Let's see some trains in Utah, which is exactly what we do. I have a lot of videos of trains in there. And the idea that I'm not going to, it happens that I have train-obsessed son and train-obsessed grandchildren. I don't know why that is, but maybe there's a train gene. But one way or another, I don't care. I care that they be passionate about anything. That's what I care about. So I feel kind of funny even bringing this back to traditional education after all that you said. But for those who are listening and who have and maybe watched the personalized high school uh, episode, I, I feel very much like a lot of what Roger's saying relates directly to the advisories and, and maybe helps to explain why those schools have such success when there's so much attention being paid to the individuals in those advisories. So we're going to move to Q&A in just a minute. But before we do so, Roger, are there other voices, if, if, if people are listening and they're really appreciating what you're saying, in addition to visiting your website, are there other voices that you recommend people might uh, pay attention to? Well, I don't know. Here and there, there are people you don't always know who they are. I mean, here's a guy that you've probably never heard of. His name is Steve Wyckoff. He used to be a superintendent of schools in some place in Wichita, Kansas, I think. And he once, he once gave me a wonderful analogy. He said, uh, if we taught basketball, the way we teach education. He said, we'd have a year-long course in dribbling, a year-long course in foul shooting, a year-long course in the theory and practice of the, of the game. But no one would ever play basketball. And there are people like that. There are leaders everywhere who write to me, who talk to me about this and that. They, they aren't necessarily famous names, but they're people who look at the system and 
are screaming about how broken it is. But it doesn't mean they can do anything about it. You can't fight McGraw-Hill, who is the people you have to fight, or educational testing service. Even when I was, you referred earlier to my talking to, to Caperton, who's the head of the college board, and I said, you don't know the quadratic equation and you're making everyone teach it. It makes no sense. And he said, oh, it's a good for you math guys. And I said, I'm a, it wasn't good for me. I don't remember it either. Um, but I said, why don't we change the system? And he got into it. He said, yeah, I, that would be nice. Um, and he then pointed to, unintentionally, what the real problem in education is deeper than everybody else. And you know, there's this old cartoon, we have met the enemy and he is us. The enemy is actually college professors at the Ivy League schools, i.e. me and my cohorts. And that's because the curriculum and why everyone holds to the curriculum has been dictated by the colleges. The college board is just doing what the colleges say. And the colleges are trying to make their lives easier. They're not, they don't want to interview everybody personally. They got into a lot of trouble anyway doing that early on because they didn't, they would take somebody who wasn't the right color and get into trouble. So they, now it's all test scores and standardized so they can't be prejudicial. And you have to take, and then they start listing the things you have to take. Two years of this, three years of that, four years of this. And I can tell you as an Ivy League college professor, it doesn't matter that you took that. This is just stuff they wrote in there to make their lives easier as admissions. But when you actually teach in college, you don't expect your students to know any of that because you know they weren't necessarily taught it well anyway. So you teach it again. So the idea that the colleges are intransigent about their admissions policies turns out to be the problem. Everyone imagines that kids are going to go to Harvard. And Harvard has a set of policies, which include the SAT and lots of algebra, that are completely backwards, that make no sense and don't matter at Harvard either. It isn't as if Harvard is learning, is using algebra, it's not. But you understand how deep this is, and I'll, before I'll get off my hobby horse, one of my favorite stories. Once upon a time, I was building Columbia University Online. That's when there was lots of dot-com money, and Columbia wanted to work with me. And I have two stories to tell you that will explain the problem. The first is I decided to do the first-year college courses and put them online at Columbia. So I went to the college chemistry professor, and I said, what percentage of your students in college first-year chemistry are pre-med? And he said, all. And I said, what do you teach that's relevant to the future life of a doctor in, in first-year chemistry? He said, nothing. I said, is there chemistry you could teach that will be relevant to a doctor? He said, of course. I said, why don't we build that course? He said, oh, well, we can't. And he gave me a thousand procedural and bureaucratic reasons why they couldn't. In other words, even at the university level, they can't teach what the kids came to learn. And the opposite story, which is also from Columbia, is an economics department there has a calculus requirement to be an economics major. So I said to the head of the economics department, because I was building first year economics, I said, why would you have a calculus requirement? I don't really think you use calculus very much when you're an economist. He said, well, some people do, but that's not why we have it. We have it because there's no business major at Columbia, and most of our students want to be business majors, so they want, therefore they decide to be economics majors, and we would be overwhelmed with economics majors, so we read them out through calculus. And so when you're in the inside of the university system, which I was, you begin to understand that the university system is the problem, it's, what the, it's the source of the problem, and it's problematic even inside the university, that they're teaching courses there that make no sense most of the time. And it's all very, everyone wants to have a bachelor's from Harvard, but no one really asks the question, what did you really learn at Harvard that would be useful in your life? And, you know, because you can analyze the poems of Milton, it doesn't necessarily make you a useful citizen. So the, the issue of trying to create a, a nation of scholars I love this phrase, scholar-athlete, is what our problem is. We ought to stop thinking about creating scholars and start teaching things that people could use. If you have a question for Roger, you can either put it in the chat 
and if you put it in the chat already and I've missed it, please uh, alert mm -hmm. me to that or post it again. Or you can use, at the bottom of your participant window, you can use the large hand with the green up arrow to raise your hand and ask him a question, and we'll give you the microphone. And do uh, be sure you've gone to Tools Audio and run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure your microphone is working. Roger, while we're waiting for a question, oh, Kathy has a question. Do you teach by modeling? I don't know what that means. Modeling what? I'm not sure what it means either. And there was some there was some humorous chat early on that, that he, we here we were all listening to you speak. And and again, uh, uh, you, in one of those lectures that I watched with you online, you were joking about the fact that you were giving a lecture. And and obviously there's a, there's a small amount of communication that takes place there, and we end up depending on it. So Kathy is saying, do you teach by demonstrating something? Kathy, do you mean Roger in particular or in general? And if you'd like to take the mic, I'd be glad to give you the microphone. She says, performing a behavior that a child imitates. Do you teach by mind uh, well, demonstrating something, performing a behavior? If you mean, does one teach that way? Yes. Uh, and children are tending to imitate their parents. They will imitate their parents. And I think one learns by modeling. I don't know that necessarily one teaches by modeling, but one definitely learns from modeling. Uh, my concept of teaching was always to throw people, not the metaphor is I threw them in the lake and made them swim. And so any course we ever built online, which is what I do, starts with, hey, here's your problem. So for example, the first year, first grade course for building engineering, uh, building a bridge is, okay, we got a problem. We need a bridge here, kids. And here's a map of the city. And what kind of bridge do you think we should do? Well, the kids don't know anything, but they're willing to speculate. And then we can lead them through the, through the issue. So all education, good education, starts with a problem that may be beyond the knowledge of the students, but is not beyond the interest of the students, that they can get, they like that problem. And that's the only way I ever taught. When I taught, if you're asking about me, um, I walked into every class I ever taught, put my feet on the desk and, said, and started my lecture with so, and never said another word in the class. And people would stare at me, and I said, like, I have nothing to say. You came here to learn. Ask me a question. Now, that would drive students crazy if you know, at Yale and Northwestern where I did it. Um, and I said, look, you know, I'm, what are you here for? I'm not, I'm not here to talk, and I'm not. And you asked me to do this, so I'm doing it, but this isn't how you teach. You can't teach en masse in this way. This is the, what we're doing here is we're modeling the classroom in a sense, and it's wrong. Now, I understand why we do it, but the real issue is to understand, get a good teacher who can teach you one-on-one. -on -one. That's what, the typical ones of those are called parents. But I think teachers have to behave that way too. Not that the system lets them do that, but it has to let them do that. Deanne asks, how do you support students to connect with what they're interested in when they have been in a system that has, that has disconnected them from this? Well, I think that's a good question. Um, I think it's very hard because when you have kids choosing what they want to do after they've graduated high school, they don't even know what the choices are. And so, of course, part of my, my game here, I mean, I, we have online, you can go look at it, a one-year, full-year health sciences curriculum, which is meant to answer that question within the domain of health sciences. So kids get to practice being a medical detective. They get to practice being a, a, a diagnostician. They get to practice running a, an emergency relief issue. They do various health things. And in the, in, in the course of that year, they don't do anything else. And afterwards, they get an idea about some of the stuff that's out there, and they can actually will have learned how to reason within those domains. And I think that the high school ought to be, if we have to have high schools, is a collection of 100 of these curricula all of which are about different areas. And the kids pick four. Each one lasts a year. If they pick four, that interest them. It sounds good to them. And they should have a right to be able to get out of it if they get bored. But in the end, they're sitting around learning real skills in real domains before they, so they can determine what they're interested in. 
The idea that we graduate kids from high school having studied the Harvard 1892 curriculum and then say, now go to college and pick a major, they don't know what the hell they're doing. So that's why you get English majors who are unemployable. I mean, I've just recently, uh, for a project I'm working on, hired a kid with a PhD in archaeology. Why, does he, why am I hiring him? Because he can't be hired. I also on my staff is somebody with a PhD in Russian literature. Also on my staff is a PhD in medical history. Why are people getting PhDs like this? They're not employable. So it's all very well and good to think about your interests, but you have to think about your interests within the context of something you like to do that somebody might hire you to do. And when you say that in university, you get funny reactions. So I can remember in 1981 when I was chairman of computer science at Yale, addressing the freshmen, and every chairman came in and said, what they should major in, why their English major was great. And I said, one sentence, which was typical of me, I said, major in computer science and get a job. And I was booed by the freshmen. But that particular year, Microsoft hired every single graduate we had at Yale, most of which are now billionaires. So I wasn't wrong, at least not in my, my view of the world, but I was wrong in the Yale ethos, which is, oh, you have to become a scholar. I don't see it that way. So I've captured about 10 questions that have come in while you're talking, so we'll rapidly fire them. Martin asks, is this teaching, is this teaching skills for the 21st century without relying on the tools of the 21st century? No, I think there are, my whole curriculum are built online so that kids can sit down and get involved in experiences and have online mentors there to help them. So it's absolutely about the tools of the 21st century. Okay, and Nick asks, uh, shifting gears, curious if you're familiar with Jeremy Balinson's work and what do you think of it? No, I never heard of Well, that's easy to move on. Uh, Coach Carroll <laughs> says, I see on your blog conceptual processes, analytical processes, and social processes. Into which of these categories do you see reflective practices belonging? Well, you need to reflect on every single one of those things that you do. You need to reflect on your diagnosis, reflect on your ability to describe, reflect on your ability to evaluate. Reflection is, it's not a cognitive process so much as um, it's part of the process of thinking. So that's what thinking, thinking involves reflection. Okay, I'm just going to keep going here. Tom says, using the example from Columbia Econ, how do you scale your system with n thousand students needing to learn and function in society where parents don't have the skills or the time, and how do we pay? Well, it's really easy. the problem I have is 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 the people who are willing to allow us to build this thing. So here's an example. Okay, I am just finished building an, an MBA program. It'll be online. It's a totally experiential, entirely learned by doing. And the story behind it is very interesting. It was done out of a school called La Salle University in Barcelona which was taken over as the president was the previous CEO of Epson in Europe. And he got to the president of the school because he had gone there and they liked him. And he said, I wouldn't hire a single graduate of this university. It's a business engineering school, but I would hire no, none of these people at Epson. And so we went through what you actually have to be hired for without academics determining the curriculum. So I actually have this online MBA program, which I have the intention to turn into a high school MBA program. Well, not an MBA, but a high school business program. And as soon as I find somebody with a little money to help me do that, I will turn that into a high school program. So my intention is how you get kids to, to do that well by offering them the possibility to launch their own businesses within the course of their curriculum while they're doing this. So they actually spend a year and try to create a business and get it online and get going with it and all the things that are learned by doing. Uh, I would mentors who, who might be anywhere around the world to help them do that. 
And the idea of local teachers, I think, is an ancient idea. If you want to learn how to be an aerospace engineer and you're in, located in Panama, you should still have your tutor be in Seattle or wherever aerospace engineers are located. So the idea that we can do that, the 21st century model is extremely important in my model because it implies that there'll be a mentor available to help you through a process and there'll be teammates who won't be working alone. I don't think people should be working alone online. It's boring. Uh, you should be working in teams, a group of people who might be anywhere. You're trying to make, create deliverables in a certain way. You're trying to have the mentor help you with the deliverables and evaluate them and tell you to go back and fix it if it needs more problems. It's not about getting A's. It's about making the airplane fly or whatever it is you're trying to do. Make your business run. So I think you can do all those things in the modern era. The problem we have is that there isn't a lot of people who want to put up the money to build these, and they're actually fairly complicated to build. We only have a couple of minutes left. I'm interested that no one's been brave enough to take the microphone. That's not normal behavior for our group, Roger. But if you do have a question mm -hmm. and would like to use the microphone, please use the hand with the green up arrow. I'm, I've got two more questions to ask quickly. Uh, Kimberly says, why is it that some individuals are successful in the current school structure and some are not? What is the difference between the A student and those who fail or drop out? Well, as a C student, I can tell you this. Uh, I was successful because at some point I believed in my own abilities. Uh, and that point occurred somewhere in the first year of graduate school. Actually, up until that point, I didn't know why I was a C student. Um, and I went to graduate school solely to avoid the draft, which was an important issue in those days. Um, and at some point I realized, gee, I actually can outthink other people. I think the people who survive the system are people who have an inherent self-confidence. It's not about getting A's, because I know I plenty, as, as doing a graduate admissions for 30 years in a PhD program, I learned not to take people who got all A's, because what those were were people who learned the right answer, memorized it, and sent it back. And they very rarely succeeded in a PhD program where they had to think on their own. So the issue is I don't view those people as successes. I think the successes of the, of the school system are those who withstood it well enough to get a degree despite the problem, because the degree seems to matter in this country, but moreover came out with a passion and an interest and knew how to follow it. And there are people who do that. In other words, they don't let school get in their way. It's not so much that school teaches them something, but they don't let school get in their way of what it is they wanted to do. So I'm going to be very embarrassed here because, Tony, you raised your hand. And for some reason, I cannot give you the microphone. So here we have our one brave soul who's raised his hand. So Tony, go ahead and ask your question in the chat. We've got one minute to go. And while we're doing so, I'm going to move the slide to the, to the next slide and just say thanks again to Learn Central and Bing and Illuminate for hosting the session. I'll leave the, coming, the sessions coming up here in the window. And while we're waiting for Tony to type, I am also going to clap. Roger, thank you so much for coming on tonight. What a, a delight and so fun to hear your perspective. Tony says, where do you see education in 10 years? What's the ideal? The ideal is that we have created 100 online curricula, story-centered curricula that allow people to live experiences that allow people to do things and work with other people to create them, where there are a series of mentors available to help anybody who wants to do anything do it. And that education is no longer everyone will learn the same stuff, but more everyone will learn the same thinking abilities within a domain of interest that's their own. Okay. That's a great way to wrap up. We are at the top of the hour, Roger, and it is late for you, and we promised just an hour. So thank you so much. Clapping again, a really positive response from the audience. Really appreciate it. The recording for this event will go up later tonight, uh, both the podcast and the full Illuminate recording. Thanks, everybody, for attending. Thank you, Roger. Have a great night. Take care, everybody.
Bye. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Good night.